Hello, friends. Thomas here. Welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. The next three weeks, we have a talk by Vimala Sara titled Why We Meditate. Before we get to the talk, just a couple things. The International Buddhist Recovery Summit's registration is now open. So go to BuddhistRecoverySummit.org to find out more. Our next Academy talk will be June 2nd with Kevin Griffin. Oh, we'd love to see you there. It's super easy to watch the live Dharma talk using Zoom on your phone or on computer. I've done both and it's really great. Uh, check out BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash Academy to get the link. And lastly, as always, we invite you to offer Donna if your heart is moved by what you hear on this podcast. The Buddhist Recovery Network is operated by volunteers, and your support is the only way we can make this happen. Donations go towards the cost of web hosting, podcast hosting, summit expenses, and to the teachers themselves. Many hearts have gone into making this happen, including yours. So check out BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash donate to offer Donna. Okay, let me introduce Vima Lasara. Vima Lasara Mason John is the current president of BRN. She was the co-founder and guiding teacher of Healing and Insight an online faculty that explored the sharp edges of suffering. She's an award-winning author of eight books. She is the co-founder and co-author of Eight Step Recovery, using the Buddhist teachings to overcome addiction. With eight step meetings in three continents. And she is also the co-founder of Mindfulness-Based Addiction Recovery, MBAR. Vimala Sara is a senior teacher in the Triatna order and community. So, any questions? When we open into questions, I am surrounded by my brothers and sisters in the order so we can all contribute to the answers of the questions. Thank you. Can you remind us what the bystanders are? Yes. Form. So form is body. Okay, so we have this body. And then as the Buddha talks about there is thought, okay, which he describes as a bubble. There is perception, okay. So that's the thinking and the the yes, just the the thinking and the cognition. And then there is the mental formation, the fabrication, okay. And then there is consciousness. So those are the scandals, and that's what we have to begin to see the emptiness in, which is why I love this sutta, because 
If you look at the ocean, there's been times when I've seen that glob of foam and it's this brownish, greyish colour and it looks solid. But if you put your hand through it, it's there's just nothing there. And then again, these thoughts that just arise, they're just mental events, but they're just like bubbles and they can just pop into nothingness. And this idea of perception of just being this mirage and how we, 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 we think we see these things is this, you know, we can be walking along the road and we think that we see a, a snake or something and it's just a piece of rubbish on the ground. And he describes the concoction, the fabrication of the mind as a banana tree, the trunk of, of a banana tree, because a banana tree looks solid, but actually it's hollow, completely hollow. And then consciousness, a magic trick. We're always playing these games with ourselves, always making these things up. And I add feeling, so thought and feeling in Skanda's feeling. Yes. Because um, uh, when you were talking about Dr. Ambinka sitting on the railway line and he saw, you know, that everything arose from, you know, believing was like a concoction of the mind. Can you tell the story about what happened next year why he chose Buddhism? Well, that kind of makes sense. But... Yes, I didn't. Yes, the, the reason why he chose Buddhism, thank you, that's a part of the story that I missed. Thank you for that, Karina Jyoti. That basically, when he came to the realisation that all past was was a state of mind, that it was a notion of mind, he realized that his people needed a religion which would emancipate the mind. And so he studied many different religions. And when he came across Buddhism, he realized that Buddhism was about the reformation of the human being. It was about the emancipation of the human mind. And so that's why he chose Buddhism, because he knew that that was the religion that could emancipate the mind. So again, coming back to what Sangharachita reminds us, that we don't meditate for happiness. It's about self-transformation, but happiness can be a byproduct of meditation. Uh, I'm quite new to all this, and I'm quite curious as to know what happened with Buddha when he died. Mm. I'm quite curious to know what happened to <laughs> Actually, I will say that um, it, it said that Mara never disappeared. Okay, in the suttas, I think that's really important to remember because we tend to think that if we get this enlightenment, whatever this enlightenment is, I mean, for me, I'm just very much with this 
analogy of like the dirt on the window, the fog on the window, and you know, you begin to just see just that bit more clearly. But I think we, we tend to think that, you know, if we can break through and we have this insight and, and we gain this enlightenment that everything's gonna be all rosy and and, and it and and it's gonna be all happiness. And Mara still did visit the Buddha. In fact, it said that the Buddha at one point said, Mara, don't leave me, I need you. I still need you to practice. And six months before he died, it said that Mara actually visited the Buddha and said, go on, take your enlightenment now, go on, tempt him. So at the point of his death, there is the story where actually the Buddha does give one more teaching somebody who really wanted to see the Buddha and it's said that Ananda, his attendant, wanted the Buddha to just die peacefully and not for the Buddha not to be bothered and kept on telling this person to, to go away. But the Buddha heard and, and the Buddha actually gave a teaching to one more person on his uh, deathbed. And, and actually it said that what killed him was actually eating poisonous food. Mm. So, you know, again, we might think that we will have this insight, but we, we're going to have a, what we describe as a peaceful death. And we wouldn't think that the Buddha would be poisoned by food, you know, things do happen. I have to remind myself sometimes, just slightly coming off uh, track this, but it is still with the Buddha, what happened with the Buddha. Sometimes when people are in conflict with me and think I, done something that I shouldn't do or perhaps don't like me, I have to remind myself, why am I complaining? There were people who wanted to kill the Buddha. In fact, you know, he had relatives that wanted to kill him. Why should I be any different? Why, you know, why do I think that none of these things will, will happen? You know, uh, there is the, uh, the saying that before enlightenment is chopping the wood and hauling the water. And after enlightenment, it's chopping the wood and hauling the water. <laughs> so, yes, the, the Buddha still had to die. It wasn't that he gained this enlightenment and he wasn't going to die. But what happened to the Buddha in his death? There are many different stories, but I don't know. I can't answer that question, and that's okay not to be able to answer that question. You but, think it was the end of suffering though? Is that like cool? <laughs> if you like. Because <laughs> you talk about the end of suffering and I wonder what that actually means. What I think is is that there is there can be an end of suffering in this lifetime. Yeah. It doesn't have to be at the point of death. For some people they do get to that point of death and they manage to see through Mara and they do find that end of suffering. But there are many people who, who die with suffering. It's, there are some people who take their life because 
they think it will end their suffering, but it doesn't actually end their suffering, which is very different from people who choose to have assisted dying and, and choose to do that from a, a, a mind, a, a peaceful mind, a, a kind mind. But there are people who choose to take their life in such a tortured mind. That really isn't an end of suffering. But the Buddha or the prince in his lifetime found an end of suffering and lived 40 or more years after with the end of suffering. And also one more thing that I want to say, it's after the ecstasy, then the laundry is a title of the book. And sometimes people think, oh, yes. But then it's again, you're right back at the beginning again, having to do the laundry. (laughs) So, but there are my brothers and sisters here. What do you think to that question? Yeah, but the laundry's more fun. (laughs) <laughs> the laundry is more fun. Yeah. But do, is the same, but the mind has changed. Yeah. And do it? Do we have to wait until we die for an end of suffering? No. Well, would be any use in practicing then, because we've got to die anyway. <laughs> and that's what's that. That to me is what's liberating. That what we do now impacts the next now. So even if we've had this unskillful life, even if we've had, you know, um, a life full of Mara, we can change in this moment now. There are many, many stories. The story of Angula Mala, who the gar- which means the garlanded one, the garlanded one. You know, the what had it who wore 99 fingers around his neck. So he had killed 99 people. And he was looking for that hundredth person to kill. And who does he happen to meet? He happens to meet the Buddha. So he had some good karma going on there. He happens to meet the Buddha. Last chance. So he doesn't get that hundredth figure. But you know what? What's so interesting again is that, yes, that he did gain enlightenment. But you know what? People still threw rocks at him. People were still angry with him. It's not that he gained enlightenment and then everybody was like, oh, yes, you're my friend and I don't mind that it's happened. He had to face, he had to face his past actions, but he did it with equanimity and realized, well, those were the consequences of his actions. And so he had to live with that, but still he found an end of suffering. What would what would it look like if he was uh, resisting his consequences? What what would it look like if he was suffering? That's a great question, Amradeepa. Can you answer it for me? <laughs> I guess the first thing that comes to mind is that he would object to people's um, 
this gusto, this pleasure or anger at himself and he would get into a bit of a state mm. and therefore lose the sense of equanimity mm. that he gained through his meditation. Mm. This, and perhaps continue murdering. Exactly. And that's what happens. We see that in, in, in life. Yeah. We do see that in life where people try to transform themselves and there are people out there who, who won't forgive them and they can't cope with that. And they just think, to hell with it. I'll just continue what I'm doing because it's not working. But there are those people who do transform their life and they still do have people who haven't forgiven them, but they forgive themselves and they realize that actually that is an end of suffering, but they have to face their past actions. And they get to the point of realizing that they're not going to be able to change that person, but they can change themselves. And that person will also be suffering because if we're still holding on to what somebody has done and we're holding on to it like a dog with a slipper in its mouth, it causes us harm. It causes us pain. Are you politically active? Am I politically active? Mm -hmm. What made you ask that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you live in a peaceful country. No, you can talk about my accent. I'm bicultural, and I am concerned about what's happening in the States now. And I live with um, abiding within the precepts in my practice. Um, and being effective in some way that I can. Um, and, um, and same here, things in New Zealand. Um, and I keep going back to what I understand Vijayamana said, but just check with yourself. Are you opening or are you shutting down? Mm. And that's a simple way. I like your question. <laughs> yeah. But before I... I'll answer that. I'll go back to Dr. Mbeka because when he did that mass conversion on October the 14th in 1956, he had the vision to travel around the whole of India converting his people. And he died six weeks later on December the 6th. And it was thought that the Buddhist world would come to his people's help. But they didn't come because they said it was a political conversion. And I asked, when is the personal political or the political personal, how could you separate the personal from the political? How can you separate that? Where I live, I don't live in the country of my origin. I'm part of the African diaspora. So the scattering of Africa, which happened through the slave trade. Mm. Every day I walk this planet, it's a political act. Mm. Every day I walk with my partner who's white, it's a political act. Mm. Her life changes. She doesn't have the same privileges she has if she was with another white person. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a political act. 
every day when I hear that another black person has been killed by the police. Yeah. So am I a political activist? It's changed. I'm a political activist through the lens of loving kindness. Mm. Whereas before, I was a political activist through the lens of ill will. And if you go on to Tricycle, if you heard of Tricycle magazine, I curated, uh, I think it's about 10 talks by Buddhists of color talking about the political activism and the Dharma. So look up the talks, yeah. And people will know in my own lineage can answer that question. So I am, but it comes through uh, a difficult, a, a different, well, it is difficult and a different lens from how I used to. Yeah, how, how I used to be a political activist. But again, it's like taking away that, that label. It's, it's very hard. How do, I, how do I respond? How do I respond in the times of Kavanaugh? You know, the, the Me Too movement. How do I respond to that? I respond to that in a way. How do I teach meditation? Coming back to meditation, there's been a... Uh, a teaching that's been shared by many Dharma teachers saying that we're living in a time in, in the West, those, are, those of us in privileged countries, because it's privileged to have this Me Too movement. And we have to think about how we teach meditation, because we are having people coming through our doors of our Buddhist centers who are completely traumatized and activated by this Me Too movement because of their own sexual abuse. And if we begin teaching the body scan, that completely can activate somebody, every single cell of the body. So in a way, even with that, being in touch with what's happening in the world and how do we practice with that. So there have been times when I think I was leading a Sangha night when there were all the people killed in the mosque in Canada. That's what we spoke to. But not assuming that people in the room were political activists because everybody is hurting. Everybody is, is hurting. No matter what side of the coin you are on, everybody is still hurting. Yeah. But I try to not uh, imprison myself with label political activists, even Buddhists. I, I remember going along to the center and after a year saying, what's this? You know, I'm supposed to let go of, you know, this label of being black and, you know, female and queer. And now I've got to take on this label <laughs> of being a Buddhist. What's this about? <laughs> but then again, 
as Dogen, the 12th century teacher, says, one of my favorite quotes, because I do often ask people in my tradition, what does it mean to let go of your white self? Because many of us in the West, in the Buddhist tradition, in the westernized Buddhist tradition, because we do know that we have many Buddhist traditions that come from China, different parts of Asia, and so in those temples there will be many Asian people. But we know in the Tri Ratna tradition, in the Shambhala tradition, in the insight meditation tradition, it's predominantly white. So for those of us here, we have to begin to let go of part of our black self to be in this tradition. Because if I held on to my black self, I would not have this around me because I would be polarizing. But many of the people in tradition haven't even thought about white self. What does that mean, let go of white self? What does it mean to let go of male self? As women, often we have to let go of part of that aspect of ourselves. But as Dogen says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. So we have to look at all these identities. It's not like, oh, we're not this and we have to let go of them. We have to look at these identities because these identities come from our conditioning. And we have to look at that and the pain of the conditioning. We have to look at that. So to study the Buddha way is to study the self. And to study the self is to let go of the self. And that's when we can begin to let go of the self. It's not like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to let go of this self. And it's not like I'm saying I'm no longer black. That's not what it's saying. In fact, I would say that Pat Parker was my best Dharma teacher. Pat Parker, the late Pat Parker, was an African-American queer writer. And she said, first you remember I'm black, and second you forget I'm black. First you remember I'm black, and second you forget I'm black. So coming back to Dolan, it's the same teaching. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to let go of the self. And to let go of the self is to be illuminated by a myriad of things. And we will end there because I've been told we end at... Okay, one more question. And unconscious bias going here as it's a woman of colour asking the question. Okay. That makes me feel good, thank you. So you're, you're starting to talk about something I'm trying to formulate in my mind, which is, you know, I'm a therapist, so a lot of clients we work with don't have a strong sense of identity and self to navigate the world, and you need one. You need one. And so the idea of, you know, and a, lot, a lot of, perhaps some of what therapy is, is maybe also helping person to build a cohesive sense of self mm. when they've been so damaged or fragmented mm. that they don't have one and it's very mm. traumatic and distressing and don't have a self to carry through mm. through you in life. Mm. But the paradox of Buddhism is that you're trying to sort of relinquish the attachment to self. So how do we do both? And that's sort of what you're talking about, isn't it? When you said 
remember I'm black, I forget I'm black. So how, how do you do that? Well, if you go to Dogen's teaching, it's to study the Buddha way is to study the self, and that's where you begin to look at those identities and form some of those positive identities. And then you let go. But in answer to your question, we have a teaching called the four Brahma Viharas. And the first stage is ourselves. And we have to repair that self. Of course, we have to repair that self. So one of the ways that I repaired myself, I had a lot of self-hatred for all sorts of reasons and I really hated myself. So part of me repairing myself was putting myself in every stage of the metabhavna. So those of you who aren't familiar with it, there's, there's who we are now, then there's the friend stage, the neutral stage and the enemy of the mind stage. And I would put myself in every stage. So that was me beginning to repair the self. And I would begin to have the affirmation, I love myself. And I would have these positive affirmations. And then I got to the point of actually realizing, yes, I do love myself. And, and I would hear the voice, I love myself. But I still had this strong voice, I hate myself. And one day, this voice came up and it was like, but there's no self to hate. What am I hating? I'm hating what's here in the head. There's, you know, there's, there's no self to love. There's, there's nothing to hate. What, what am I hating? And that, in a way, was a beginning of a freeing up, uh, a liberation. But before I could get to even see that, I had to create a strong, positive self. Yeah. So it's not like, yes, uh, we have to let go of the self. And this, this is what happen, happens because often people get into this nihilistic way, this nihilism. And yeah, yeah. So in answer to your question, yes. Therapists are great at helping people to create the strong self. But what therapists are terrible at is not helping people to let go of the story. You know, sometimes we have people in therapy for 10, 12 years with the same therapist. The relationship has stopped working because the therapist needs to become redundant. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way, yes, to affirm the story, it's important to have the story heard. But, you know, people tell the same story over and over and over and over again, man. 20 years later, they're still telling the same story. How do we begin to let go of the story? And that's what the Dharma does that that's that's the, the the transformation to let go of the story but before you can let go of it of course there has to be some acknowledgement of it some building up of this strong sense of self positive sense of self thank you thank you